Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be interviewing Linda Ngbe, who is a very passionate animal activist working in rural Zimbabwe. And she's trying to change the world for animals, which is very exciting. And I really apologize for my pronunciation of Linda's last name. I really do. I tried really hard. Yeah, we, we, we tried, but but we I'm not sure we got it right. Re- yeah. I really hate to highlight that other names that aren't English-speaking common names are hard to pronounce, but, but we both found this one difficult to pronounce. Yeah. So sorry, Linda. Fortunately, your first name is Linda. We got that, I think. <laughs> yeah, I definitely. loved this interview. I know, it you've been talking so, about she's it. such a lovely person and, and really passionate about animals and and she loves her dogs and cats. And she just, I so identified with her. Uh, and and though in, in other ways, she's very different. She comes from a very religious perspective, which I don't, but really fascinating, fascinating interview. I loved it. Yeah, no, I'm excited to hear it. And do I sound zen, by the way, right now? Do I, do I, do I, do I, do I, do I, do I? Zen? Sound zen? Like chill, uh, calm, relaxed? Totally. Yeah, that, that's that's how I picture Zen Buddhist uh, monasteries, everybody walking around acting like that. Well, I because I went to a flotation tank, like a, a sensory deprivation tank, I should say. I went the other day to one, and I have been to them before in Santa Cruz because, you know, when in Rome. But I went for the first time here, and I had like a gift certificate. I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And I finally was like, I'm going to do this. So for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, a sensory deprivation tank is this like tank of salt water, but the salt water is very low. It's like, you know, a few inches and you go in, it's, it's 98.6 degrees in the room and in the water and it's totally dark. Well, you can leave a little light on, but in an ideal world, it's totally dark. And so it's the same temperature as your body. So it's supposed to give you this like deep, relaxing experience. And I wanted to start off my year with the same self-care that other people want to start off their year with, which quickly wanes uh, for a lot of us. But so I started my year off with that. I, can I can I just clarify this more? Because I really don't know what this is like. And basically, it sounds... You're in a tank. Is this one of the ones where they close the top? Because that is a non-starter for me. I'm pretty claustrophobic. So I went to a big room. They do have ones that close up, but I went to one that's in a big room because they offer it to like couples and claustrophobic people and claustrophobic couples. I took the whole room for myself, even though it's supposed to be for two people. And it's supposed to basically bring you to this deep state of relaxation because you're floating. Wait a second. The, the water is in a room or are you in a tank? There's a like Basically, it looks like a jacuzzi tub, but it's it's shallower. And it takes and, up a whole room? It takes up about half the room, and the other half is a little shower and a right. place for you to change. And so it only has a few inches of water in it, but do you float? Yes, you float. It's salt water. It's all, it must be unbelievably salty. Unbelievably salty, yes. And... It was relaxing. I liked it. Like, do you put your head back? Yes, but there's this little, like, piece of uh, floaty material that keeps your head floating. So you're basically resting your head on this little 
thing. It looks like a toilet seat. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds really lovely. Yeah, but like a styrofoam, but not styrofoam, like a silicone sort of toilet seat for your head, you know? And anyway, so that's why I seem so relaxed right now, in case you were wondering. Yeah, you seem totally relaxed. Well, it was self-care. I mean, don't you think people should do some kind of, you know, start off the new year right kind of thing? I think self-care is good. But as you know, I think we've talked about this probably more than once, you know, there's self-care, then there's self-care. And self-care used to be when it started out, the whole idea of self-care was for activists. And and like, you have to take care of yourself in order to be effective in the world. Now it's just like you take care of yourself because you like to take care of yourself. Self-care has just become a religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love self-care and I love to, well, I haven't gotten a massage in like years, but that was, that, that was basically because of COVID. Like, I like all that stuff. Yeah. I don't like this. I don't think I like this one, though. This sounds horrible. Well, I do have a massage therapist I did start seeing in in the same vein of, like, relaxation. I just do half-hour sessions with her, but I usually don't like getting massages. I find them really painful, and then I get really nauseous afterwards, and then it doesn't help after that. But this person's a little different, so I do recommend... I'll send you her info. This is a ridiculous conversation. Well, what have you been doing for like self-care? Anything interesting? Well, you know, I got my knee surgery like a few months ago, which we talked about, and it still hurts like hell. So I guess that's (laughs) self-care. I'm hoping at some point it turns into something positive. And then uh, I know we went to the, um, uh, this is something I really did enjoy. Uh, We went to the birdhouse store. There's an entire store here that is devoted to birds and bird feeders and bird houses and bird games and bird books. And and I I bought myself a brand new bird feeder, uh, like it cost a fortune. (laughs) I don't know whether it was supposed to cost that much. And the really, really good seed. And I just thought nothing would give me more pleasure than looking out of my window and seeing birds. I uh, since I moved the last time, actually, it's a couple of years, uh, a few years that since I moved from a place where I, I could have a bird feeder and and it's about time I started one again because I really, really enjoy them. I don't know that much about them. So if anybody has any any advice, there's a small group of people who, who don't think they're a good idea. And then there's a lot of people who say, well, if you're going to have a bird feeder, you have to be absolutely faithful because they come to rely on it. And that does make sense. So I, I want to be a good bird feeder. But a- any advice is, is very welcome. Oh, so there's this thing that I keep getting targeted in this ad on Instagram, and it's for a bird feeder that has a tiny little camera in it. And you can... Oh, yeah. I keep get I get targeted with that, too. They must oh be spending God. a fortune on Instagram. It's so cool. Like I want that so much. Yeah. And you get to look at the bird in your phone in an app. Yeah. I would basically quit my... I would never yeah. work again. Well, I'm hoping to be able to put the bird feeder someplace close. I mean, I have a tiny yard, so it can't be too far away. Someplace close enough and easy enough so that I can just look out the window and, and watch them. That That's the best. And then I, you can have binoculars too, so you can see them. So you don't actually need a camera. You can just use your eyes. Oh, you're right. Uh, by the way, I have to tell you something. I <laughs> I got an email today from a listener whose name is also Marianne. And she said that she heard me talk about recently on the podcast that my cat Stella likes Impossible Burgers. And she and this Marianne has to like pill her cat. And so she bought these Impossible Burger meatballs and she puts the pills in them now. And the cat's like so happy and takes them. That makes total sense. Yeah. I, I've never pilled a cat. 
I mean, I've had cats, but I've never had to pill one. I know they have pill pockets for them. Of course, they're not, pill pockets aren't vegan, but right. I have used them. I confess. I've used them for dogs. I would bet Impossible Burgers, because I've seen Stella with an Impossible Burger, and she's like a lioness on on, on the African yeah. savannah, pouncing no, on her prey. Like, <laughs> she's not the most active cat in the world, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. but it, when she spies an Impossible Burger, she is very enthusiastic. So I have to tell you, well, you know, I want to tell our listeners that I got bullied into doing stand-up comedy the other day. You always have to be bullied to get up in front of an audience, don't you? <laughs> well, I do get shy. I know you do get shy, but then, you know, you have that like, I, I love it. I hate it. I love it. I hate it. I love it. I hate it. Yeah. No, so this weekend, last, I, I'm now going... I'm now doing the newscasts at WXXI. So if you want to get the WXXI app, you can. I'm on on Saturday and Sunday mornings at 7, 8, and 9 Eastern, but not like the whole hour. The O4s are, are the big time, so feel free to tune in. But anyway. If you're up at 7.04 on the weekend. Oh, yeah, and this is Eastern yeah. time. So if you're up Actually, at what, I have, I have a friend. 4.04 uh, on the West Coast. Yes. <laughs> Maybe if you stay out late, have a, have a crazy night. I have a friend who listened. This person was in California and she listened, so it can happen. Anyway, Scott Feibush has been training me and he's really terrific at radio. And he also does comedy. So I mentioned I had done some stand-up, like very little in LA. And he was like, well, there's this queer open mic tonight. And I'm like, I can't, you know, I have to get up early Sunday, so no. And he like was like, come on, just do it. You know, we'll get everything set up ahead of time. So I did it. And uh, the vegan lesbian killjoy was brought back. Vegan lesbian killjoy is my stand-up comedy uh, title. I don't know, not like name, but it's like your drag name. Yeah, basically, it's my comedy drag name. And I did make a lot of it about veganism, a lot of my routine, and it landed well. You did. I, I didn't. I didn't see it live, but I, I did watch it. Uh, you had a recording of it, and I watched it. You were you were good. I, I mean, and I'm not enthusiastic about stand-up as a general rule. I, it generally makes me cringe unless it's really, really good. So good job. Thank you. Uh, so, all right, kind of switching gears. Last week we had on Chrissy Benson and we've been getting a lot of really great feedback. People really love fiction authors and who talk about veganism. And I love that too. Obviously, we recently interviewed Camille and now we had we had Chrissy. And actually our Instagram over at our hen house is, has had a really cool conversation going about like vegans vegan representation in fiction. Yeah, there's so, so much more than I realized. Yeah, and and to make that point, there is the first vegan women fiction author roundtable coming up on World Book Day, March 2nd, 2023. And it is, well, it is virtual and it looks really cool. And so I'm going to put this in the show notes. You've got MC Ronan from the Liberation Trilogy, Andine Sherman from the Animal Allies series, Ray Starr, the Earthlings Trilogy, Suli Otagavaya. All right. I think I got that. I don't know. Suli, tell me if I got that wrong. Animal Voices, uh, Silent Knowing. So that sounds cool. And then it's, and then Whitney Metz from the Black Magic series. It's being hosted by Jackie Norman from Vegan FTA. So Cool. Yeah, I think that's a topic so many people are interested in. And so many people, you know, have the itch to write fiction. And I think they should all just do it. Yes, I just 
Some of them will be really good and hopefully it'll be you. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't mean you. I mean them. Well, I hope it's me also. Well, you too. Yeah. You too. So just a few other things before we get to the interview. So for those of you who are in the flock and came to the Flock Friday with Anita Kreintz, who is so great and does so so much great work with the plant-based treaty, then you know that we have this really exciting new platform for for Flock members and for all our Hen House listeners. There will just be different things available to Flock members on it. But we have launched a community platform through Mighty Networks, and we will be sending invitations to the Flock in the coming week. So the people who are at the Flock meeting already got that. We have soft, soft launched with them, and now we're going to invite the rest of the Flock in the coming week. After that, we'll be launching for everyone, all listeners. This will be a group that will be accessible to everyone. I'm not totally sure when it'll happen, but it'll be in the near future. And... Honestly, it's like the most amazing thing to happen to our henhouse in the longest time because it's become so engaged even already. And there are so many different uh, ways of connecting, ways of categorizing or connecting with one another that is available for anyone who wants to become a a better activist, a more supported activist, uh, to get more vegan friends. We have so many things coming down the pipeline, book clubs, Ask Marianne Anything, Um, (laughs) a new podcast that's going to be you and I behind the paywall talking about ritual and things like that. So definitely check it out if you're not in the flock. Think about joining if you can. It's ourhenhouse.org slash donate. It's just $10 a month. And if you are in the flock, thank you. And this is coming your way soon. So more on that to come. Yeah, even I am excited about it. Wow. So that's a high bar. Speaking of the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Nice segue. Thank you. Let's talk about the New York Women's Bar Association because you have a CLE program coming up. Yeah, I'm a member of the Animal Law Committee there, which is uh, chaired by by Lydia Antonsich, a wonderful animal activist. We have a, a program coming up. It's online and anybody can come. The title is What Happens When Doing the Right Thing Can Land You in Jail? It's all about activist defense, specifically in animal activism. And it's going to focus on strategies for defending activists and and talking a bit about uh, the Smithfield trial, of course, which uh, recently concluded uh, successfully for the defendants in Utah, and also pending charges against a sanctuary in upstate New York, a fascinating, fascinating case. And one of the speakers will be Chris Carraway, who's the director of the brand new Animal Activist Legal Defense Project at the University of Denver, Sturm College of Law. Amazing, amazing new legal clinic, specifically created for defending animal activists. And the, the other panelists will be me. And the the moderator will be Michael Dorff, who you might have heard on the Animal Law Podcast. He's a incredibly prestigious professor of law at Cornell Law School. This is on January 19th, so coming up very soon. It's only an hour long, 6 to 7 p.m. That's Eastern. If you don't want CLE credit, all you have to do is email RSVP to Animal Law. That's A-N-I-M-A-L-L-A-W at N-Y-W-B-A.org and put yourself on the list and you will get the you will get the link if you email to that email address. And it says on the website you have to do that before January 14th, but I have the inside word that you don't. As long as you it, if you need CLE credit, then you have to register on the website. I think you could probably only get New York CLE credit. So that would be a little hard. That's a little bit more complicated. 
I think it's going to be really cool. I am so excited to get to know Chris. Uh, I think he's going to be a really important person in in the animal law and in the animal rights movement because I think that, as as you all know, you know, activism is really speeding up and people are doing things that may be perceived as illegal but maybe aren't illegal. And we all have to learn more about about exactly how all of that works. So I think this will be a great start. Hope to see you there. We will link to it in the show notes. Very exciting stuff. Love that. All right, let's get to the interview. Linda Ngbe is an animal lover advocating for the welfare of animals in Lupana, Zimbabwe. She is the founder of Humane Africa Trust, a nonprofit organization with the mission of creating a better world for all animals. Her love for animals and Christian background make her want to see human and non-human animals coexisting perfectly, as, as she calls it, God's creation. And she believes that this is her calling on earth. She is also an advocate for educating communities on the benefits of a plant-based diet. She's a devout member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and holds a diploma in developmental studies and a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in local governance studies. She has three human children and four non-human children, two dogs, Fender and Copper, and two cats, Kira Tile and Jelly Bee Precise. That's my new favorite name for a cat, Jelly Bee Precise. Jelly Bee Precise. And also, can I just say how great it is that she named her animals, but not her children? <laughs> okay. According to Linda, a day well spent in her life is when she gives service to any non-human animal. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our hen house, Linda. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm pleased. I'm happy to be here today. Thank you so much. We're, we're thrilled to have you and very excited to hear about the work that you're doing. Let's start off with the basics. Just tell us what is Humane Africa Trust and what kind of work does it do? Okay, Humane Africa Trust is a non-profit organization, animal welfare organization. What we do mainly, we work from the rural areas. We are based in the rural areas. So what we do, we're concerned about the welfare of animals. The, our activities include teaching about the freedoms or about the welfare of animals at schools, at the community level. We also do mobile clinics where we visit the areas or the, the communities treating their dogs, donkeys and kids. Mainly we focus on the on the animals that are not eaten because they are the animals that are neglected most in our community. So mainly we focus on animals such as cats, dogs, donkeys and we also do other the farm animals yes we do that we also help people with the veterinary medications like taking their dogs or their animals to the veterinary because people like i said we are in a poor setup so people cannot afford the veterinary expenses so that's what we do we also promote so much vegan diet so we are into promoting promotion of the vegan diet where we go by preparing foods, 
and making people taste, having lessons on teaching them how to make vegan meals. So that's what Humane Africa mainly is. That is really a lot. You are doing really a, a, a great many uh, different kinds of activities, remarkable work. And, and I, I wasn't aware that you were in a rural area, which makes it even more interesting. Most of the people from Africa I have interviewed have been from cities. But before we get into any more into the work that you're doing, I know that you're caring about animals and your Christian faith are deeply connected. Can you tell us about that and, and how they are so connected? Okay, what I believe as a Christian, we talk about love. So when we talk about love, we are talking about love to every creature. We are here on earth with other creatures, with the environment. So when we talk of love, it should encompass all those. We can't be talking about love to humans, from humans to humans. We should also talk about love to non-humans. So like I'm saying, in my belief, in my Christian belief, God created us to be in this earth. He also put the animals, the environment, the trees. So like we are stewards of those things. It is my duty as a Christian to be taking care of those animals and the environment at large. To me, Christianity can't be Christianity without loving other creatures that are on earth. So Christianity has to go with animals, environment and everything. I wish every person of faith shared your belief because it's a very, very beautiful image. How do you account for the fact that so many people of faith, of Christian faith, don't see this? It must trouble you. Yeah, it's troubling. Like, But I do understand because myself at a certain point, I just took Christianity without looking at animals. It was just about us people. But due to learning due to mingling with other animal lovers and things, I learned that principle. So, like, I'm not angry at those people. Of course, it's disheartening because when people see animals, they just see products to be eaten. I see it as a duty that this task is upon me that I should also show some light to others that are not aware what's happening, how we should handle our Christianity. So it's my duty. I see this as a task. I see this as a calling. I'm called to help people understand about animals. I, I just love your vision. I want to put you in charge of everything. <laughs> like if only people could see the world the way you do. I know it's not just you because a lot of your beliefs, at least to some extent, are rooted in Seventh-day Adventism. Yes. Now, that is a religion that I have heard of and I'm familiar with its vegetarian uh, background, which is very exciting, but I don't know a lot about it. Can you tell us a little bit more about Seventh-day Adventism? Okay, Seventh-day Adventism, we are Christians that believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We worship on the seventh day, that is Saturday. Uh, what I like about Seventh-day Adventists, they talk much, we talk much about the our diets, our health. It's a concern. So my Christianity doesn't promote the eating of animals. We do eat, it doesn't restrict, but it doesn't promote. Like it promotes a vegan diet. It promotes what we call an eating diet. The diet that was that we found in the Bible in Genesis, because we believe that eating the eating of other animals came after sin when that was Noah's time. But when God created Adam and Eve, there was no meat there. It was just fruits, vegetables and plants. That was that. So as seventh day Adventist, there is this concept of health and temperance. We are so much particular about our health, what we eat. 
we realize that most of the things that we eat, especially the animal products, most of it are the causes of our illness or of our sufferings and things like that. So my faith is so much particular about what we take as human beings, what we eat. Yeah, that's what I can say about my faith. It is so interesting, isn't it, that that it turns out that the things that are best for us to eat are the things that are best for the animals, are the things that are the best for the planet. Like it all makes sense. Only so few people seem to make sense of it. Did you grow up in as a Seventh-day Adventist? Yes, I was seventh. I come from a Seventh-day Adventist family up to now. I'm still a Seventh-day Adventist. Tell us a little bit more about where you live. And is, is Seventh-day Adventist a very common religion there? And, and are there a lot of people who agree with you about animals or do you feel all alone with it? In our community, then it's like the animal welfare thing, the animal welfare issue concept is something that is new to the people. When people look at the animals, it's just about making business, rearing the chickens, eating them, selling them. Uh, so what I can say, there are a little bit of Adventists that understand that. But due to the work that I've been doing, especially from last year, I had a program that I was doing with Creature Kind in a, an organization in America. It was an online organization. So it allowed me to preach. It was specifically preaching to my church, speaking to the Seventh-day Adventists about the issue of animals and about our health. So that's when I, last year, that is 2021, yeah, the program ended, or by the way, this year. <laughs> so I was mainly teaching about the issue of animals and people were welcoming that issue. So it's like it has started to penetrate in my church. We talk about it in my church. I asked for slot to preach about it, to send some WhatsApp or on social media, I do preach about it. So it's like something that is entering a Seventh-day Adventist. Like we have the concept of being the steward of the earth. So it's like, it's not all that tiresome. It's not that all that difficult to convince the people because they know that they are stewards of this earth. So they are stewards of the animals and everything that is in it. Of course, there are not a lot of Adventists in this area, but the ones that are there, they do understand. And they are helping me so much in my work. They are making it easy for me to do my work. Oh, that is amazing. It's amazing to have a community, even if it is a small one. It, it really changes everything. What kind of outreach do you do? I know you mentioned a lot of things you do with animals, and a lot of them have to do with direct care of animals, companion animals, etc. But let's start by talking about vegan advocacy. What kind of What kind of work do you do outside of the Seventh-day Adventist community to help spread the idea that we shouldn't eat animals and that and and that veganism is a good way to live. Okay, we've got community programs where we like we invite people, anyone is invited, like the one that we did in February, everyone is, was invited to come and and do a practical lesson on cooking the vegan meals. I'll buy the ingredients and everything that is needed and people come and concentrate and we we teach them on how, because mainly people are saying that the vegan diet is boring because they do not know more much recipes about that. So what I discovered is that there are many recipes that we have, especially the traditional ones. There is a survey that I was doing sometime this year, going to the rural areas, trying to get the traditional recipes, traditional 
foods that we're eating because as we know about this civilization, most of our traditional foods are now like we do not know them. So I was just interviewing older people, people around 90 years, 85 years, asking them what is it that they were eating and there's a lot. So we are compiling some book, a recipe book for that. So that's what mainly I'll be doing to the community. And what kind of response do you get? Are people enthusiastic? Yes, people are willing to try. They are willing to try. Of course, they are not. Pro- most of, some of them are not promising hundred percent commitment, but they are willing to try. Because some of them, you find, there are some of them who are maybe have uh, healthy conditions that they have been prescribed to reduce on meat or things like that. So for those people, it's just easier if you talk to them after getting those information from their doctors or whatever. What about the traditional diet in Zimbabwe? Is it largely plant-based as it is in much of Africa, or are there a lot of animals in people's traditional diet? Yeah, meat has always been an important part of the diet, but meat mainly is there mainly for special occasions. That's where meat is supposed. It's a must when there are big occasions, people are gathering, like we are going to, towards Christmas and things like that, there has to be meat. But the traditional diet is a lot of interesting vegan diet also. Do people associate meat with prosperity? Yes, 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 yes. Meat eaters, mainly people who can afford to have a breakfast with meat, lunch with meat, a dinner with meat, are people who are better in the society. Yeah. Eating vegetables like associated to being poor. Yeah, we see that we see that in so many countries and a lot of vegan advocates in Africa that I've spoken to as well as in other places in the in the global south point out and this may not be so as true in Zimbabwe but point out the relationship of really a lot of meat in the diet with colonialism that it's not from a long standing African or South American or whatever tradition, it, it has to do a lot with the European diet being imposed on people. Is this something that people are aware of or or agree with uh, in Zimbabwe? Uh, what I realized, maybe traditional, there were times when animals were killed, especially the domestic animals. Like they were killed during winter because people did not have refrigerators. So they will kill animals during that time. I think it was a good idea because it limited the number of animals being killed, like animals, cows and goats were killed in winter. So like the colonial diet of also, I can say it contributes to too much of meat eating because there are these things like bacon, sausages that we did not have traditional. Traditional for us was to kill a cow, then eat. We do not have these other processed things. But with the introduction of the of the processed things, there's too much intake of meat. Yeah, no, I think I think we see the same trend happening in so many different places. Let's move on to the other topics because your your organization is doing so many things. How do you approach teaching children? That's one of the things that you mentioned about respecting animals and caring for animals. Like, what's your method for working with children to really reach them with this message? Okay, like in primary school, we work with children of different ages, like in primary schools, we do like dramas, theater, something like that. Yeah, where we teach through actions, teach through pictures, especially for the primary kids, we teach them. And the kids are so intelligent to grasp everything that we teach to them. So we like tell them maybe 
schedule a weekend where we'll visit their homes because all these kids, they have homes where they are these animals. And we'll see, let's say we are visiting a kid with a dog. We'll make sure we'll prepare the place for the dog to sleep. We prepare the dishes and everything, the place for the dog, and we make the environment of a dog to be better. So like we teach a schools and then make a follow-up to a homestead by homestead for the kids to make sure that they are animals. Yeah. Wow. That is really intensive. And what is the response of the children? Do you see their attitudes changing uh, towards their companion animals as they see how much you care? Yes, yes. There is a lot of special. There was this kid. He's now he has turned to vegan. He was a 12-year-old. She was not comfortable after the lesson, comfortable about killing the goats and the and the mother was saying, please, can you please give me some food that is vegetarian? Because my kid, after hearing you, she's refusing to eat meat. So kids, they do, and they have that empathy towards the animals because the kids are the ones who take care of those goats and cows. So they've got an attachment with those animals. So killing those animals, they feel pain too. That, even if it's for their food. That's a great story. I love that. And I, I love her mother too, for not just like making her eat what, what is put in front of her, but actually yeah. res- respecting her wishes. That's a, it's a great story. You're in a rural area and I'm sure a lot of the animals there are raised by individuals, but what about factory farming? Is it growing in Zimbabwe? Yes. Factory farming is growing so much in Zimbabwe, especially in bigger towns. Yes. There is factory farming, there are cages. Uh, we also do a com- campaigns for online campaigns for cage-free work. So there is so much more chickens on cages, on battery cages, layers and broilers. So it's co- in fact, the government is promoting that. Factory farming is being promoted. There are loans that are given for people to buy the battery cages. So it's like it's hard working on that because the factory farming is for those people with money, for those people mainly that are connected with the government, with the powers. So it's like you're like being a, a nuisance to them when we talk about these things. So it's like, yes, it's being promoted in Zimbabwe. I'm just curious about the fact that, though, as you said, factory farming is growing there in Africa and in Zimbabwe um, specifically. It, 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 isn't, it hasn't completely taken hold, as it has here. Here, all the animals are raised in factory farms. You never see animals. Uh, and so I'm wondering whether, in spite of the fact that, you know, it seems tough and the government is against you, maybe there's an opportunity for Africa, Zimbabwe specifically, Africa in general, to be kind of in a leadership role here, to put an end to this before it gets worse. Yes, for us, it's maybe like, it's factory farming hasn't taken hold of everything. Like in the rural areas, we have our cows, we have our goats. So I think we just what we need is much advocacy. I can't blame the government. I can't blame those teaching or those doing the factory farming. It's that they do not know. There are some that we've approached and they seem to be in dark about that. Yeah. So I can't blame people, but what we need to do is to maybe increase or on our advocacy so that people do understand. It's not that people are resistant, but in our situation, people do not understand. They don't know about those animal rights and things. Yeah, no, it seems like people everywhere, even good people who are otherwise leading very virtuous lives, can be very blind 
to what's happening to animals. It's so troubling. One of the things I noticed from your, so you mentioned that you work with dogs and cats. I noticed on your social media, many pictures of cats and I love cats. I have cats myself. Can you tell us a little bit about, about the, the kind of work you do with, with cats and dogs as well? I mean, I love dogs too, but <laughs> I don't mean to leave them out. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, for cats, our community is a lot of, you can say homeless kids. They are roaming. You can't just can't go around 500 meters. You see a kid, you see a kid. There are lots of kids. So what we do mainly is spaying neuter. Like this year and last year, we were busy with spaying and neutering those kids. We had a grant from SPCA International, so we were neutering those kids, but taking back them to where they live in the community. So that's what we do, and we do feed them. We feed these kids, and we try to teach the people, because they people sometimes they become cruel to these kids because they eat their chickens, they eat their chicks, so they... We like try to people maybe coexist with them because also they are a good. They protect people from snakes, like they catch the snakes and the rats. So we try to make people coexist with these animals. And the dogs, most of our dogs, they are not stray dogs. They are old, but they roam around find food. So you find dogs everywhere, but they have got worms. They just roam around too. And when we're trying to do the neutering and spaying program. Uh, people were not welcoming it because dogs are seen as a source of income. They are a source of income. If a dog is a puppy, you then go and sell that puppy. So people, they don't want their dogs to be fixed. Uh, it's a challenge there. So when we're trying to fix the dogs, yeah, people, it's an income like a dog, a puppy is exchanged with a chicken. So people, they do that. So you find a person is having 12 dogs, very poorly kept because if she or we can't afford them, but it's like a source of income. But we're trying to teach people on those things of about that. And yeah, mainly for dogs and kids this year and last year, it was about sparing and nurturing and then feeding them. Yeah. And the dogs were vaccinating against rabies because there's a lot of outbreaks. People do not take their dogs for rapid vaccinations. So we're doing most of the vaccinations against rabies. You certainly have a lot of work cut out for you. Actually, I have one more question because we haven't talked about wild animals. And, you know, a lot of people here very much associate Africa with your extraordinary wild animals. Um, do you do any work with, with wild animals, either directly or teaching children about uh, wild animals? We do teach the community about the wild animals because there is a tendency of poaching. They do illegal poaching here. Because we are near a game park, so there are elephants, there are water parks, and these other kudus, small animals. So people, they do hunt. Like I said, they keep too many dogs. They use those to do hunting. So we are like trying. Of course, it's illegal, but they do it. So we are like advocating or teaching them on that they, these animals, they are not supposed to be just eating or doing those things. And we work with the national parks. Like if we see and they do stray these elephants or whatever, we phone the national parks to come and, and to attend to the animals that would have, would have strayed. Like we work with them in keeping their, the, the environment about the... Even though you have trouble getting people sometimes to care about wild animals or to care about cats and dogs, I'm sure there are still many people who do care about them, but still don't make any connection to, to the animals they eat. 
Do you find this to be the case? That's certainly the case here. So many people care passionately about wild animals, about cats and dogs, and just never give a thought about the animals that they eat. Yeah, there's- Is this the case as well? And how, how do you encourage people to see the connection, both children and adults? Yes, that's the case here. When people see a pig, they don't see a pig. They see steak chops, they see trotters, those things. So people, of course, they've got this connection with the animals that they do not eat. But the ones that they eat, to them, it's like a product. It's like people will be saying, why are you advocating about, why are we talking about chicken? It's like chicken is just like a vegetable. It's something that we should eat. So there is no connection, literally there is no connection. People see this as products that need, need to be eaten. Like even if we are talking about the welfare of the chickens that they keep, keep for resale, they'll be like saying, why should you care about these, uh, these chickens? At the end of the day, we are going to kill them. So it's like, it's a lot of a challenge. People don't see them as animals, but mainly as food. Yeah, that is exactly the same here and I think everywhere. What do you think the difference is between you and other people? Not, you know, you know, other good people who who care about animals and, you know, why do you see it? What is that the answer, Linda? Because if we know that, we could change the world. What is it that helps people see this connection between animals, which not everybody loves animals, but really a lot of people love animals? but they just don't see the connection to animals they eat. How do you, how do you get people to see that? The way we, we were socialized, the way we grew up is the one which is a challenge because we socialized to think that chickens are food. So like I said before, we need to teach people. People need to be taught. It's not that people are, are resistant to what. Of course, maybe we can't reach them all, but people need to be taught. This thing, is, I think, is taught it develops. Like I say about myself, when I entered into animal welfare, I was a different, of course I loved the animals like you are saying, but there was there was never this connection. But now after much study and being in the field, there is this connection that I have about animals. So it's just teaching people about that. Some people, they they need to be taught. We need to tell them. Yeah, they really need to be taught. I and I'm I'm so grateful that you're there doing exactly that. It is a big job though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <you laughs> There's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of people and most of them just seem so blind on this issue. I'm so glad that you are not and that you're doing this work. Where can people find out more about your work online? Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's where we are found mainly. That's Humane Africa Trust, right? Yes. To me in Africa Trust. Excellent. Thank you so much for, for doing what you do and for sharing it with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising.
first story this it's a, is a weird one. She just published this. This is by Amanda Zalukic, who styles herself uh, the farmer's daughter, and she is on Ag Daily. Cringeworthy food awards. For some reason, she is she is recapping several past years of really disappointing things that happened to the ag industry during what she calls the most pretentious time of year, the entertainment industry's award season. She really hates the entertainment industry. I don't know. Is that a, this is the time when our favorite narcissistic celebrities hold lavish parties and don glamorous dresses so they can congratulate each other. Like, okay, a lot of people like them, but you know, I guess you don't. They also use these televised affairs as a platform because their usual soapboxes aren't large enough to quote unquote educate the rest of us peons about their favorite political causes of the moment. A little defensive, Amanda? I, I don't know. But, but anyway, she does like remind us of several really, really great highlights of the past few years. She talks about the Golden Globe Awards. If you don't know, and I didn't, this award show honors the best in film and American television as decided by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. I have no idea what that means either. Can you kind of figure it out? <laughs> I don't know. She's never heard of the. She doesn't know what the Golden Globes are? All right. The most virtue signaling award goes to the 2020 Golden Globe dinner. Uh, in 2020, the GG went where no other awards show has ever gone. Vegan. I wonder if they haven't had the Golden Globe since. The, I don't know what's going on. And then she gives the, the, the recipe, which sounds amazing. Chilled golden beet soup, locally grown chervil and amaranth, followed by a main dish of king oyster mushrooms with wild mushroom risotto, roasted baby purple and green Brussels sprouts, carrots and pea tendrils. That sounds amazing, I have to say. They talked about it because they said it was do, they were doing this because of the climate crisis. She says, well, they must have missed the memo. Because even if all Americans ditched animal proteins, it would reduce the U.S. carbon emissions by just 2.6%. She says that like it's true. <laughs> and the nutritional costs would be far greater. I know, the nutritional costs. Think of it. Everybody would be healthy uh, eating their Russell sprouts. The most virtue signaling honorable mention goes to, of course, Joaquin Phoenix. I can't believe Joaquin didn't win this one. Phoenix is a lifetime vegan. Like all good vegans, he has to remind you of that fact. Can't, they can't say that too much. They always have to remind us about how they think that vegans constantly remind them about how they're vegan, which, as I've pointed out a million times, they don't know when we don't remind them. <laughs> they only know the times we do. I could remind them much, much more. He talks about, um, you know, how they how he he talked about it at the Golden Globes. And then he doubled down during his Oscar speech, specifically bashing the dairy industry. It was an amazing speech. I'm sure you all remember it. Like, and are we missing the fact that here that, you know, this guy is winning all the awards? Like, you know, like you're not the lamest. We're not supposed to use the word lame. That's insulting. The lamest after party goes to the 2015. We're really reaching back. Sadly, we have to reach back to find these things. 2015 Golden Globes Awards Style Lounge. All right. So there's there's a secret room events or a group called Secret Room Events, and they host style lounges. I didn't even know this, but not that I'm barely up on celebrity gossip. And um, where celebrities are lavished with expensive new products and exotic trips. In 2015, Secret Room Events chose Farm Sanctuary as its featured quote unquote charity. I guess we use that word really loosely. <laughs> it is a charity. I mean, it is. It's, it's registered. The Radical Animal Rights Group, Farm Sanctuary, no less, 
which received donations from the event, focuses its work on, quote, rescuing farm animals. We call that theft where I'm from. You know, the fact of the matter is Farm Sanctuary doesn't steal animals. They come by them in a number of different ways, but they don't steal them. And aims to end farm animal cruelty, which they define as any animal living on a farm. Well, yeah, I'm not sure they say that specifically, but that is kind of the story. The exception to the rule award goes to the farm worker Me Too movement. And then she says this isn't about animal activism. She's really mad that the, all of these A-list stars, including Meryl Streep, Emma Watson, and Emma Stone, in 2018 asked women leading efforts to prevent sexual assault against female farm workers. Now, I bet she had an editor. I don't know. Because then she goes back to say, this, this, is, this is really important and sexual assault isn't, into, isn't tolerable. But, but the problem is they didn't fix it. They're doing this, didn't fix everything. These stars were happy to look like they cared, but five years later and nothing has changed. Like, apparently, it's, it's pointless to do anything unless you actually fix the entire problem. Like just a, a, really, a really charming little story. She's, she's a real sweetheart, isn't she? All right, in 2022, it's not sex that sells, it's vegan hate. This is actually an article from December, so I guess it was 2022. This is from Plant-Based News. They're talking about this weird thing. And you might remember this. There was a, a thing that started on Reddit. And it, it really took off on Reddit. And a user infamously asked the Am I the Asshole Forum if she was in the wrong for feeding her daughter's friend meat and dairy, despite knowing her family are strict vegans. And, and uh, the... The, the the response on Reddit was apparently, yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Like, that's not your right to do that. And the, the way the, the poster had put it, the parents of the vegan girl were nice but neurotic. And the girl was small, pale and weak, in dire need of real sustenance. This kind-hearted individual serves foods that are not permitted at home to give the girl a healthy glow. And yeah, they the Reddit response was, yeah, this is terrible, they're vegans. They get to tell, you don't even know if she's allergic, but even if she isn't, like, obviously it's horrifying. All right. And then it got co loads of coverage. It, it took off. And most of the coverage at the time um, was, was kind of equivalent that the poster was deemed at fault, or at least it covered the fact that the other Reddit users said that the poster was at fault. And this is a terrible thing to do. And then all of a sudden this story came back in October, 2022. And this author says this offers a searing glimpse into how much worse anti-vegan discourse has gotten. Interesting, because this is in the UK, where, of course, veganism is really taking off. And, of course, the pushback is, is vicious, I'm sure. Instead of mum slammed, which we saw in the previous articles, there's, my daughter's vegan friend looks really pale, so I always feed her meat when she comes around uh, in one of the papers. And, you know, with a much more favorable... Uh, uh, take on, on what this person did. And one of them had this stock image of a young girl happily eating meat off the bone as if it was this great thing that was done for her. And this, this author here who, who um, you know, writes for plant-based news, her name is Amy Buxton. She's very concerned about it. She thinks that the tone, and it, you know, it's interesting for me because I, she's a firsthand observer in the UK that the tone is just getting really, really ugly. At first, this was treated as a real violation of this child and their, her parents, and now it's in its place is a lighthearted vibe that assumes it's all just a bit of a laugh. Problematic. Really, this really is troubling and, you know, something we have to be on, on guard about. Our final story is from meetingplace.com. 
And the title of this is from the center of my plate column by uh, Lisa Keefe, Instant Karma. What she is writing about is um, alt meat. And she's not, I'm not sure that I call this raising, rising anxiety. So the like, way it is, they're bashing alt meat left and right these days. And they're saying it's totally unsuccessful. I don't think that's true. I think that, you know, it's struggling. Some companies more than others. I think Impossible, my, I, well, I've been reading that Impossible is doing really well, but I don't know. I don't actually know the facts on it. But she's saying, and she's not really against the alt meat uh, side of the story, that we need patience. It's kind of kind of what I'm saying. I hate it when I say the same thing as people on Meeting Place. Alt meat entrepreneurs and financiers and conventional meat companies with skin in the alt game must turn their attention to the long game in lieu of stratospheric sales gains at the expense of profits and premature public offerings. That's exactly true. I mean, this is a long game. And of course, when it took off, it was making all the papers and it was very exciting. The stock took off and there was a lot of buzz. And now, you know, we're in for the slog. Uh, at the same time, she says, the way the sector goes to the market has to offer more immediate benefits to consumers. Taste, price among plant-based alt meats. Interesting. Price among plant-based alt meats. She's not saying that they can compete with real animal-based cruel meat, but I think that they can. That's what they have to focus on. She's probably afraid to say that on, on meaningplace.com. And fewer sermons about climate change. I don't agree with her about that, though I think I think climate is a growing panic. And it's it's still it's still much less than it should be. But but people are going to start to pay more and more attention to that. But she's right. Most people buy a taste and price. That's what people buy on. At the beginning of 2024, she says the alt meat industry will be at another place on the learning curve where it is hard to predict because the use of fermented alt meats and mycelium will certainly see record levels of growth in 23, albeit off a tiny base. Meanwhile, regulators in the U.S. and elsewhere seem poised to let cultivated meat out of the lab. The alt meat market overall will be more complex a year from now. I think it's going to be an amazing year and so much to pay attention to. So yeah, Lisa, you and I are sort of kind of on the same page. Not really, but kind of. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you're always welcome to make any size donation you're comfortable with. You can also support us by leaving a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. You could also leave us a review on Facebook. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 